So welcome everybody to this LSE Review of Books Literary Festival event. Uh, we're here to discuss sex and psychopaths, celebrating 100 years of Freud's on narcissism. I'm Amy Mollett and I'm the managing editor of the LSE Review of Books. Uh, if you haven't heard of us before, we're an open access online only initiative at the LSE. Uh, we started about two years ago, we published reviews of all the latest social science books, everything from anthropology right through to economics, everything in between. Uh, this week is really exciting for us because we get to uh, be here with all of you and uh, be here for this fantastic event. Um, please have a look at us online. We're lsereviewbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter at lsereviewbooks. And today especially, it's a great day to go on and have a look at the sites. It's our 1,000th book review that goes up today. And also we have published an e-book that celebrates this event. Um, it's got some amazing contributions from some of the greatest thinkers in the field. Um, so have a look online at lsereviewbooks.com. So now I'll hand over to Elizabeth Cotton, our chair for the day, and uh, get started. Thank you. Hello, welcome to Sex and Psychopaths. I cannot imagine what drew you to this event. <laughs> it's been really, it's funny actually preparing for this event on narcissism because it's everywhere and it's including this space. The reluctance to actually sit next to each other is extraordinary. And there's a lot written by Ron Britton about narcissism and the failure to share space. Can I ask some of you just to move in a bit because we might have a few late comments. Seriously, if you, can bear just, it. If, if you can bear it, you know, don't, don't make it hurt, but just move yourselves in a bit. <laughs> So, listen, we have just less than an hour and a half to discuss Freud's ideas on narcissism. And um, to... I don't know how to introduce you, so I'm going to introduce you to our panel. They're here to, to help us discuss this issue. So it's a kind of dubious honour to be called an expert in narcissism. You know, I can't work out a way of saying it without being rude about these people. You've got to have a certain level of chutzpah, have you not, to be on a panel of sex and psychopaths. So at least they're brave. Because you're not psychopaths. Well, it was interesting. Last night we got a series of Twitters asking which one of us yeah, is psychopaths. Yeah, 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 yeah. I said the jury's out and we could take a vote. <laughs> <laughs> Steve. <laughs> so, um, but uh, listen, these, these are extraordinary people. Their, their biographies are just incredible, and they're long, and they're up on the LSE website, so I'm not going to give you all their details. But on, first on the left here, we have David Morgan, who's a psychoanalyst, and he's going to be looking at um, narcissism from a clinical and a developmental perspective. We have Mariana Fataki from Warwick, who's going to be looking at narcissism within public policy. We have Yanis Gabriel from Bath who's going to be talking about this interesting idea of narcissistic deficit what he calls the culture of echoes and Steve Fuller also from Warwick who's going to be talking about narcissism and personhood so um, before we start just a few housekeeping things one is just to point out obviously for a narcissism event we're filming ourselves and we're also podcasting I know the jokes just keep coming don't they <laughs> these are both the emergency exits um, and also just to say I don't want to have a debate about it but the Wi-Fi is awful down here so if you're an LSE person you can tweet and good luck to you. If, you if you're not an LSE person try not to get too frustrated you just switch off your phone for an hour and a half talk to people that you're in the room with Okay, now before we start we're going to do a quiz we're going to do an anonymous quiz using these little things I hope everybody's got one including panel members. 
And this is a quiz taken from the Narcissistic Personality Index, which is one of these very well-used indexes to, to test whether you are a narcissist. So just to see... <laughs> Seriously. And I, I hate uh, psychological questionnaires because I always fail them and I always end up feeling like a psychiatric dictionary, you know, when I've finished. I feel like a complete loser. But I've actually really enjoyed this one because it's actually quite difficult to answer questions about narcissism honestly. Because it's not a good look, is it? We, we would like to deny what we really think of ourselves. So we've just got three questions, which you just press either A for true or B for false. And we're going to see where we are. So, am I a narcissist? This is literally on the questionnaire. I like to, this is not a trick question. I like to look at myself in the mirror. True or false? We're not getting any responses showing up. <gasps> Technological failure. Have we hit a limitation? That's Jane Tinkler. She's from the LSE. So self-preoccupied. <laughs> She's busy thinking about herself, though. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, do you like to look at yourself in the mirror? A for yes, B for no. Hey, here we go. No, just just do it once. We're, we're just waiting for everybody to finish pressing. Some people have to think about it for a bit. I don't know. Oh, look, I think that's quite healthy. It's honest, isn't it? Well, we need to work on it. That 37% needs some help. Okay, so. I love asking this question at the LSE. This is great. I'm more capable than other people. Of course. True or false? This is going to be interesting. Okay. Oh no. <laughs> don't, don't be trying to analyze that, do you? Okay. Next question. The final question. I think I'm a special person. <laughs> it's anonymous. No one ever needs that. You can just ask <laughs> Very long, very long, Elizabeth. Let's see if we can get that higher. Okay, do I just can I switch this off? Sorry. We're just gonna switch this off because it's a blind Jesus. Do I stand up? Um I was going to sit. Okay. Do you want to sit? That's fine. People you can they can see. hear me. Yeah, they can hear you. So, um, before we start with the panel, the panel are going to speak for five to ten minutes each, and then we're just opening it up for discussion. But I just wanted to 
sort of frame the idea around narcissism for the discussions might be helpful. So Freud's paper on narcissism is a deceptive little paper because it's a little one, but it's absolutely rammed full of ideas around narcissism, and some of them aren't very well formed. And when I was reading up about narcissism, I read in several places that apparently narcissism is the most written about concept in psychoanalysis. And that, you know, again, a cheap joke, but it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? We can't stop talking about ourselves. But I think there are some important reasons why this is such um, a discussed area. And the first is that it's actually a very troublesome concept for us. I mean, much as we keep talking about corporate psychopaths and corporate culture... Actually, it really isn't a good look to be a narcissist. And so when we see aspects of ourselves, narcissistic aspects of ourselves, we can feel quite anxious. And so there's an obvious question, you know, at what point does narcissism make us sick? At what point does it become pathological? The second reason why narcissism is so discussed is because it's a very broad term. It's, you know, it's an everyday thing. It's stuff that exists in every aspect of our lives. Those of us who have been preparing for this event, we're seeing it everywhere all the time. It's a bit like when you first learn what the word sex means. You know, you suddenly see it everywhere. And um, there are some sort of different terms, narcissistic terms, that might be quite helpful in our discussions. One of the ideas is around developmental narcissism so Freud very famously wrote about his majesty the baby so a stage of development where we believe we're the centre of the universe and totally in charge and it's, a, it's an idea it's a state of mind like a superhero and it's a state of mind that we return to at different points in our lives and also some of us never quite grow out of the second idea is libidinal narcissism, which is the desire, the wanting side of us. And it's to want something, to want ourselves, something that we believe is ours, um, something that we believe is in, we're in control of. And the third idea is a really complicated idea of defensive narcissism. And it's a kind of, very politely we could call it self-sufficiency, but it's, it's a withdrawal. Sometimes it's called a narcissistic withdrawal. And um, some thinkers think of this as the most destructive part of narcissism because it's fundamentally anti-relationship and it sort of very crudely says, I don't like you because you're different, it's kind of allergic to other people, and I don't need you. And so that's the destructive aspect of narcissism. I think the third reason why narcissism is so discussed is because of our culture. So obviously there's lots of debates at the moment about whether we do or don't live in a narcissistic culture. And by that I mean a culture which denies realities. It's a culture which denies vulnerabilities, dependencies and limitations. And it's often connected to debates around... Um, Technologies, for example, social media. Now, all of us, I think, certainly those of us that work in mental health, we use the technologies. They're very, very useful to help people. But, of course, there's a seduction, isn't there, with social media that we can you know, never feel lonely and all of us have got hundreds of friends. And also the reality that social online activity is dominated by pornography and often hardcore stuff. So one of the questions that, that um, seems to be very live at the moment is, firstly, are we living in a narcissistic culture? And secondly, is this leading to a crisis in intimacy? So I'm going to start off with David. Okay. <clears throat> I gave a talk on narcissism down in Bath last week, and everybody did a, f a feedback form. 
and one person wrote, David Morgan is eminently suitable to give this lecture. (laughs) (laughs) Make your own minds up. uh. Um, I work in a consulting room, eight, nine hours a day. the predominant uh, feature that people bring, the, the problems they bring are narcissistic ones. The capacity to form a human relationship is enormously difficult. It seems to be getting more difficult for some reason. Okay? And I think one of the reasons is there are much more distractions in our world. Uh, I was reading on a paper on the way down, actually, that in Japan they've introduced the first robot woman. And marriages in Japan have fallen by 40%, partly because of the use of pornography by men in Japan. Okay? So I, I had a fancy of writing a paper school from geisha to robot, you know, <laughs> controlling women, the need to control the object. Because controlling the other person is, is, is enormously important. As human beings are enormously unreliable. The, the thing about having a relationship with pornography or the internet or a drug or an alcohol is it's a substance. It does, it's not three-dimensional. It gives you a sense of power because you can switch it on and switch it off whenever you feel like it, like the robot woman. A human relationship, by its very nature, is finite. In fact, the three things that we're all most frightened of, which I think is human dependency, the fact that we're all created from a couple of one sort or another, and the third fact of life is we all die. And there's nothing like a dependent relationship to make you aware of all these three factors. The whole aim of narcissism is to avoid these facts of life. If I've got a drug or an alcohol or a substance or a computer or... Uh, a robot woman from Japan is be importing into our country soon. I can have the sense of having a relationship with something that doesn't make me too aware of myself. My, it's the three-dimensionality that people are terrified of. Why? Because I think quite very early on, quite a lot of the people I've seen have had huge disruptions and breakdowns in their early relationships in one form or another. They've been plunged into a world too early where they've become made aware of the fragility and the finiteness of human life. If you do that, narcissism is incredibly helpful. Um, I did some work with uh, some art therapists to work with survivors, children who'd survived the Mexican earthquake. And there were little babies who'd been in the hospital in Mexico, you might remember, who'd all been buried in this earthquake. And she said that what was remarkable when these children were pulled out, when they were still alive, were pulled out of this um, postnatal ward that they'd been in, they're all looking at their hands. Okay, right? This is what babies do anyway, but this was a sort of permanent fixture. So you say they'd idealised or invested a part of their own bodies with, with um, uh, life, as if it was a separate piece of life, as a way of keeping themselves alive. So there's a positive aspect to narcissism. You know? The problem with the people I see who cannot make relationships, because the closer you get to somebody, sexual intercourse, intimacy, love, it makes you aware of their vulnerability. And vulnerability is terrifying for lots of people who use narcissism as a defence. We all use narcissism as a defence to some extent. But I think for those people for whom it gets in the way of human relationships, there's been a serious breakdown in trust and the idea that a human relationship is something you can depend upon. So falling back on one's own body, one's own thoughts, one's own creations, um, or things that actually give you a sense of control, be it drugs, alcohol or pornography, whatever it might be, I think are all tools in the narcissistic arsenal to avoid the terror and the fear of human relationships. And I think one of, the, one of the core factors that comes into the consulting room, which is why the analyst earns his living in a narcissistic way, you know, 50-minute sessions, you know, all these people that come and see me, uh, is because at some level human relationships are felt to be terrifying. Intimacy exposes you to yourself, not the narcissistic defence we may have created to defend ourselves from life and its corollary death. Yeah. 
which is the uh, death, if you like, is the uh, is a threat to narcissism. The fact we live and we die does give us some way of perhaps working out what's most important in life. Okay, and basically, it's not oneself; it's the other. It's capacity to form a deep relationship with the other, and through that oneself, it gives life meaning. And I think narcissists basically, or well, all of us use narcissism actually at times. I think to give ourselves in huge sense of importance to avoid the fact that we're not that important and that's a terrifying fact for all of us that we're not that important and our contributions even in 10 minute discussions at the LSE will be nothing in the great universe <laughs> <laughs> and the only reason I'm here is that I think it will make a difference but uh, you know uh, and people want to come and see me for referrals <laughs> Because earning one's living, you know, I've got to the point in my life where I've got a pension, finally, from the NHS, not very big, but the, actually the freedom that's given me to actually sort of speak and speak freely, I'm working with a group of whistleblowers at the moment, to speak freely rather than be frightened about my own uh, survival, you know, that I didn't have a cushion to fall back on in my life. So that narcissism at one level is about survival and the capacity to feel that one has enough to actually begin to actually engage with others deeply and meaningfully and not all about seduction and wanting to have power over you and control because if I don't have power and control you'll have power and control over me a dog-eat-dog sort of world what Klein called the paranoid schizoid position being a total narcissist and a total psychopath in the purely Darwinian world okay, without any higher aspirations means you're going to be a winner okay? and as people say People say cream rises to the top. I actually think something else rises to the top. <laughs> and so people in power are often the ones with, you know, quite strong narcissistic drives, you know, psychopathic drives that are more important to them than other people. Okay. So that's my spiel. Okay. Wow, thank you. <laughs> Just to say it as it actually is. Thank you. That was quite an introduction. Now to Mariana. We all know it from the inside too. So. <laughs> um, all right. Thank you very much, Elizabeth, and the LSE Book Review for inviting me to actually and giving me the opportunity to talk to you today. So um, I'll pick the thread that David has started, and I'll actually concentrate on what are the organizational and societal effects of narcissism. So I'm going to speak about the public policy. Surprising topic, narcissism and public policy. Nevertheless, I think there is a big relationship between the two. So we all know that the myth of narcissus, a man who was so beautiful and, and so attractive that was not able to love anybody else but himself, and in order to embrace himself in the mirror, that was the water, the lake at that point, he actually fallen in and drawn, right? So dying out of love for himself. But that idea, is, as Elizabeth correctly said, has traveled quite widely. And in the past hundred years, it shaped popular culture, business, and public policy I'm going to focus on. So psychoanalytic ideas are very useful and have been used quite successfully in business and organizations. And recently in public policy, just to understand how people work or don't work together very well. And as David very correctly said, I mean, the fear of intimacy, the fear of being with one's own emotions is what underlies it. 
So, and narcissism, on the other hand, it's a very positive emotion. I mean, we wouldn't have survived without loving ourselves. And even Freud's thinking on that has changed over time. He actually concluded that we all have a healthy degree of narcissism called productive narcissism, for example. But the problem is with narcissism when it becomes pathological. And when does it become pathological? Well, it becomes pathological when actually narcissists, people characterized as pathological narcissists, are unable to see the consequences of their actions for others. So they really don't perceive the other as the self, as a person who has the same feelings, the same, um, the same emotions, the same desires, and so on. Not only they do not perceive the other as the self, but they don't see the other, basically. So the other is an, an object for fulfill, fulfilling their needs. Nevertheless, narcissists are very attractive, seductive. They have a vision. Uh, they, because they, they want to pursue their desires, they'll do anything. And they're very good news for the companies. <laughs> so businesses love narcissists. And it, no, they yeah. do, they do. Yeah. Because uh, if you ask, if when I ask my students, who is the leader, they'll say somebody who has a vision, right? And that's the first thing that a narcissist would probably bring to the, to the organization. Well, so these are productive narcissists, and I don't have time to go to various examples here. However, the problem with narcissism is that uh, the people who are pathological narcissists, they live in their own bubbles. They actually have a problem of living with their own emotions. It may be surprising, but they don't like being in touch with emotions. So they'll do anything to avoid that contact. And that means actually that they'll avoid any truth that may tarnish their own self-image because, because they have a very thin skin in that way. So, so they don't learn from others on an organizational level. They just only have the, you know, the entourage that will confirm their self-image, will admire them rather than love them. So, um, yes, and we tend to think that actually leaders are pathological deviants, um, you know, in, and, and we love to hate them for that. However, in a more sophisticated way, narcissists express our desires and our ambivalence towards that. So uh, we project on our leaders what we would like them to do for us. And in fact, uh, my colleague and my admired colleague, Yanis, has said that leaders are actually spinning our dreams. And I think that's a fantastic yeah. thing. They're spinning our dreams, actually. So, so, so in that sense, uh, these powerful deviants, famous celebrities, and business leaders and politicians are very close to celebrities these days, aren't they? So they do the thing for us. And of course, because we project our desire for power onto them, we also want to see them falling from grace. Public policy, where does it go into that? So I think that we live in times that actually uh, it's not just simply that the, these powerful figures uh, express a desire for us, but actually the policy is appealing to little narcissists in ourselves. How is that done? So, well, very recently a lot of things happen. We hear everywhere, everywhere from all walks of life that we can do anything we want, all of us, each of us, no limits, no reality principle, as Freud would have said. We just can become, we teach our our children to become anything they want. Can that be true? Can all of us become what we want to become? That would be lovely, but that's oh. not... Well, that's I mean, the reality <laughs> principle. I've said that I football for England. Well, we're all going to die at the end of the day, so the that's fantasy, true. in psychoanalytic terms, underpinning that, I'll is actually that. that we can overcome our fear of mortality. And even our children, I mean, live, we live through our children after... Oh, well, you are all too young, or most of you too young anyway, to see that I in the... Sorry. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> well, but, but to public policy. So recently we observed in Europe a, a big trend, and I, I, I'm working a lot with health policy. So we observe a trend that actually instead of looking at very real social policy problems, inequality of income, which is growing exponentially, instead of actually looking at the challenges to our environment, you know, policymakers are preoccupied with discourses of choice, personalization. Each of us can choose actually what we like from something that's called public service. So I, I think it's an attack on the commons, I would call it, an attack on the commons, an attack on the collective. And psychoanalytically speaking, it's avoiding relationality because we exist only in relations to others. And that policy discourse in just that promotes individual choice at the expense of this collective good of the public interest is just actually appealing, that's my thesis, is appealing to our personal narcissists in all of us. So I, why is it problematic, you may say? What's wrong with that? Well, the wrong thing is that, that actually there are limitations. You know, life is about limitations. Life is about boundary. And narcissistic a kind of appeal is actually trying to convince us that there will be no realities. At the end of the day, you can see that in the NHS, something that I work with quite closely. So uh, we will be able to offer more choices about relatively insignificant things because people really care about having a trustworthy professional rather than actually having to choose among five different professionals, doctors, for example. And patients normally don't possess the information many patients anyway, to make that informed choice. So people rely on trust and on the relationality with their doctors, and yet our policymakers try to convince us that we need personalization and choice about every aspect. At the same time, we have a Nicholson challenge, every, every, and we have to have a cutting spends in the NHS by 15 billions. 15 billions until, I think, the year 2020, I think, right? <laughs> so choices are costly. And yet, so I, I'm just using that little example just to illustrate how um, this narcissistic appeal is actually to, to present the public with unrealistic desires and actually put the public in the fold so that the public is kind of compliant with that whole discourse. So in conclusion, the narcissistic denial of reality actually deflects the citizens' attention from a social critique that's so much needed, actually. And I think realizing and understanding how narcissism may un underpin public policies can actually, and how it becomes prevalent increasingly in ways that are very destructive. So for each failure, let's say, in health services, you know, Frontline staff will be blamed. So, uh, and um, well, another example, not from health, but for example, the financial bubble. So, it's not just about perverse incentives to create mechanisms and derivatives that cannot work, or because nobody understood how they really worked in reality. It's about denying actually the the consequences that are very easy to predict of what might happen at the end of the day when you completely deregulate financial industry and nobody is really speaking about regulating it back. I mean, very muted voices really. So, so the consequences are quite predictable. So, what I'm trying to say here is that public institutions have been created to curtail the pathological, the possibility for us to express individual and collectively the pathological aspects of narcissism and we are living in an era that, we've, uh, that we actually experience a big backlash in that way. Okay, thank you very much. Hello, thank you very much for the invitation which prompted quite a number of thoughts in me and I think that the two early presentations already 
have focused on our mind on the narcissist's uh, inability and difficulties in forming relations and opening himself or herself up to intimacy, uh, I think that I want to draw attention to another dimension of, uh, of uh, narcissism, which Mariana alluded to, with the concept of choice and the concept of uh, uh, choosing who you are, what identity you have, what uh, objects you consume, how you construct yourself as a sovereign being. And here I want to bring in uh, consumerism, uh, the thirst for possession, the thirst especially for beautifying accoutrements. And here we have a real thorn. Narcissus didn't want any possessions. Narcissus didn't need any makeup. Narcissus didn't need any of those things that we crave and thirst for today. And here I make another aside to Mariana. Uh, Of course, uh, business loves narcissists. It loves narcissistic uh, leaders, but it also loves even more narcissistic consumers. Mm. I mean, where would uh, business be without us going and spending our money on things that we don't uh, uh, need uh, in the interest of uh, what we believe will make us more desirable, more attractive? So with these thoughts in the back of my mind, I reflected on whether we meet narcissists today and thought that, well, Wandering, wandering around the streets, you can see Narcissus in cafes, you can see Narcissus in shops, you can see Narcissus uh, looking at his image in mirrors and in computer screens. Uh, but how do we know when we've met the real thing, the real Narcissus? Uh, for one thing, Narcissus does not return our gaze. Narcissus is consumed uh, by himself and he's not registering uh, other people. Um, He's lost in himself and barely registers the existence of other people. Remember that in the old story, Narcissus spurns the love of many uh, nymphs and also spurns the love of Echo, uh, who ends up a shriveled uh, carcass of a body uh, doomed to do nothing else but to repeat herself. Uh, she fell tragically in love with him, of course. So a culture of, uh, of narcissism, to me, is a culture of echoes. It's a culture of endless bavardage, a culture where voices are just sounds reverberating off each other uh, in the interest of making themselves heard. Uh, Narcissus, however, is not interested in all these voices. He's uninterested in what we have to say. Uh, no need for the other's voice. Why then have we as a culture like Echo fallen in love with Narcissus? If I want you to remember one thing from this brief talk is prompted by Elizabeth's question that we have fallen in love with Narcissus because Narcissus can be anybody we like. Uh, He features in politics, in arts, the media, consumption, and... I think that our love for Narcissus has replaced our love for other uh, mythological archetypes. Our love for the tragic archetype of Oedipus. Who talks about the Oedipus complex these days, uh, David? We've forgotten about that. Uh, The love of... uh, uh, Just as well. (laughs) The love of of the wise Athena. The love of heroic Achilles. Uh, and even the love of beautiful but relatively boring people like uh, uh, Adonis and, um, and um, <laughs> Helen. 
<laughs> so let us not <laughs> let us not deceive ourselves. The reason why the concept of narcissism overta- has overtaken virtually any other idea, uh, psychoanalytic, is not the concept's intrinsic brilliance, although it is a brilliant idea. Rather, it's, uh, it, it's due to its ability to match nearly anything that we like or dislike about ourselves and our culture. Mm-hmm. Narcissism is popular because it can flexibly be used and abused, responding to any projection we like to, mm-hmm. uh, to focus on it, any wish and any desire. So, unlike concepts that are regarded as intrinsically contested and contestable, like justice, art, love, and so forth, narcissism is a concept that is very flexible. It doesn't have any real backbone, and it easily fits into any discussion and any discourse. And that's the irony, again, that Narcissus, who has no voice of his own, easily becomes a a, a comfortable part of other people's conversations. Now let's cast our mind very briefly back to the ancient Greeks who invented Narcissus. And they were not a culture of narcissism, but a culture of narcissists. Uh, An important difference, I think. Something that left us with a rich legacy of artistic and other uh, uh, artifacts that you can see in the British Museum, but which cost them dear, because they didn't really last that long, as Thomas uh, Mann remarked. So theirs was a culture of narcissistic surpluses. Ours is a culture of narcissistic deficits. They were boastful, disputatious, and constantly prone to hubris. Ours is a culture of survivors uh, licking their narcissistic wounds and forever feeling underappreciated and sidestepped. Lost in our impersonal cities, uh, we seek solace equally in impersonal shopping malls and media, our cathedrals of consumption, and fail to develop relations with each other. As if uh, Photoshop retouching and plastic surgery and an infinite array of beautifying accoutrements could turn us into narcissists. But all this, of course, is self-delusion. Narcissus needed no audience and relied on no beautifying accoutrements. Freud knew his ancient myths very well, and he uh, read Narcissist to a T. He argued clearly that it's not the narcissist, but the erotic type who is constantly dependent on the love and approval of, of others. By contrast, Narcissist is described as somebody with a proud ego, capable of original action and thought, and somebody who, quote, is independent and not open to intimidation by the views of others. Sadly, this is not how we have come to recognize Narcissus today. In seeking to emulate Narcissus, I fear that we have become like the shriveled carcass of the subjectless voice of poor Echo. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, And uh, I'm going to pick up on the theme of Echo and and her relationship to Narcissus. But let me start by saying a little bit of where I'm coming from on this, because I'm not a a natural expert on this topic. But one thing that I'm very much interested and concerned about is definitions of humanity. 
And whatever, however one wants to def- define human beings, one of the things that's clear is that there's a sense in which the history of the concept of humanity has involved extending the concept outward from a core group of people uh, and, and basically those people seeing in others the kinds of qualities that they've always admired in themselves, essentially. That's basically what, what the extension of the concept of humanity has been about. I mean, yes, it involves the recognition of difference and so forth. That goes without saying. But of course, you can't make the extension, to, especially if what you want to do is to have a, a larger, more inclusive kind of community, unless you see some fundamental similarities. So the ability to, to project those similarities has been very important in the way in which the concept of humanity has developed. And so from this standpoint, right, narcissism becomes a problem, right? Because narcissism is what inhibits you from being able to do that. And, in, and so I'm using narcissism uh, largely when Elizabeth was introducing the concept, uh, the defense of narcissism, that this is really the problem here. Right? And so a lot of the more positive views about narcissism that have been presented, um, in a sense, um, in a way, I almost don't want to call those things narcissism, because uh, in, in a way that immediately kind of gives it an unnecessarily negative cast, and it doesn't, it doesn't kind of focus enough on this particular problem, which is the problem of being able to see in others the things that you value in yourself. Right. So in other words, if you see somebody do something good, you either say, I could have done it better, right, or they're not really doing it. Right? And so that then becomes the grounds on which it becomes very difficult to have any kind of intimacy or any kind of serious social relations. Okay? So this is the, it's the defense of narcissism that seems to me the real target problem. Okay? Um, but otherwise, it seems to me that the idea that you, can, you, know, you, you start projecting yourself on others and others respond appropriately and you're receptive to that, all of that is pretty good and has been very much part of the way in which humanity has kind of expanded its horizons over the centuries. Um, and so w- if we go back to the original myth of Narcissus, um, if you look at the way it's presented in Ovid's Metamorphoses, right, which is, in a way is a kind of one canonical presentation of it in that great Roman love epic, um, the, uh, the problem uh, with Narcissus when he deals with Echo uh, is that Echo is, because of the curse that's been placed on her by Athena, uh, is actually repeating everything Narcissus, Narcissus is saying to her, right, because uh, he's trying to figure out who is this nymph who's lying around in the distance there. And every time he says something, she repeats the words back to him. And, and he just gets frightened. He doesn't recognize it as his own words. Right? So in other words, something that in principle you might say might become a bond, a basis on which to go toward the person, becomes a way, a basis on which he steps back. Okay? And, and this is a defensive narcissist moment. Okay? Um, and... Um, Scholars who study uh, Ovid say that one of the influences on his thinking might have been uh, the way in which Cicero, the great Roman orator, uh, characterized Pompey, one of the great generals of Rome who was a rival of Caesar, and, and it was a Pompey that, that Cicero said, uh, you know, a man who is in love with himself has no rivals, right? Uh, and Pompey was, a kind of, right, a Pompey was a kind of guy who was very, uh, very brilliant as a military strategist and so forth, but could never listen to people, okay? Um, and as a result, that became the basis of his downfall, at least the way Cicero presents the story didactically, right? That, that this was a brilliant man who couldn't even recognize help when it was being given to him, okay? And so he becomes the master of his own downfall in that respect. Okay, and again, this is the kind of defensive narcissism where, in a sense, uh, you can't actually see when other people are actually helping you or extending you and so forth. 
Um, and it seems to me this is the real problem here. Um, now, in terms of how all of this relates to um, you know, the, the social media and modern technology and things like this, um, I think one of the things that needs to be said here uh, is that one of the advantages, I would say, of social media um, is the fact that, uh, in a sense, uh, you are, are given a kind of a, a, a sort of palette on which to project, you know, project what you're thinking and so forth. Uh, and, and so, in that respect, it's not obvious where your boundaries of the self are, okay? Because one of the things about defensive narcissism is you have to have a very clear sense of where yourself, you know, ends and something else begins. And I think with social media, that does get blurred, and that can, in principle, be kind of beneficial in a way, because people, and even, even if it ends up being a matter of that you're misunderstanding people because you're assuming that they are thinking the way you're thinking, but in fact they really aren't, but the fact of the matter is you start off with that kind of assumption, you're reaching out. Okay, and it's that reaching out part I think is actually quite positive, and part of it has to do with the fact that you don't have the clear signals of differences, you know, so physical distance, you know, different bodies and things like that aren't really there. Okay, and so that can actually be quite a productive experience. Um, in the article uh, that I've written for this ebook that's coming out that was mentioned at the beginning of the uh, of the session, um, one of the things that I point out uh, is that um, a narcissist, in this defensive narcissist sense would never be able to administer the Turing test, if you're familiar with this. Okay, so the Turing test um, is this test where you have, to, you have two entities um, and you have to guess whether, you know, whether it is, uh, one, which is the human and which is the computer, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, it's a, and, and the thing here is that uh, there's supposed to be a sort of threshold level whereby, you know, if the computer gets good enough, right, you actually recognize it as a person. Right, that it, it gets a de facto kind of human status because you really can't tell the difference anymore. Now, that, that assumption that you could actually reach such a state requires that it's possible for that other thing to have all the qualities that you value when you're thinking about what is a person and what is a human being. Okay? Now, a defensive narcissist would never reach that point. There would never be sufficiently enough questions to be able to ask that other entity to see whether they could pass as a bona fide human or person, okay? Uh, and so they could never administer the, the Turing test. They'd never be satisfied. They'd always think, oh, uh, you know, that's something someone could have made up. You know, that's not really something that's coming, even though it's something that they might themselves have said before. Um, so I think this, this, this is the context in which I think about this topic, namely that, uh, that, that the defensive narcissism is really what the problem is here, and, and the problem has to do with the inability to extend our concept of humanity, which has in fact been a very important thing, and is bound to become more important as time goes on, because we're not just extending it to other homo sapiens, but now we're thinking about extending personhood to animals and to machines and things of that kind, and it's in that context where it becomes very important for this defensive narcissism to be broken down. And I'll, I'll stop there. Wow. Okay. I don't know what to do. That was so rich. Um, I feel like I need to lie down, but we can't. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what I'm going to do is just take three thoughts or questions. It doesn't have to be well formulated at all at time. Get people to answer, and then we'll take some more questions until we have to stop. Okay, so. 
Hi, I'm Jane Tinkler from the LSE. I'm, I'm really interested in the concept of the selfie that obviously we've seen <laughs> hugely. Um, and we even saw um, President Obama having a sel- taking a selfie at Nelson Mandela's funeral. So this has really reached, uh, you know. Um, so I, I wonder if you could just give me your thoughts on, on what you think that says about us, maybe, or uh, is it a very narcissistic thing to do to take a selfie? There's a funeral. There's a funeral of a great man. That's really not not so great people. Were taking pictures of themselves. <laughs> yeah, okay, hold back, hold back. <laughs> Hi, thank you. Um, is any analysis on uh, human na- uh, narcissus? What's the word? Narcissism. Narcissism, sorry. Is it, a, is it kind of not backed up unless understanding of DNA is first uh, defined and then working from that point of view? Hmm. That's maybe something about whether it's genetic or probably. Yeah, yeah, I, I can answer that. One. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right in the middle. Oh, hi, I'm Cathy, a psychotic Finn. <laughs> Just to ask, how can you can you help narcissistic people? Wow. Can you teach them to listen? Because I've been taught. <laughs> As a narcissist, answer your own question. Okay, so who's to take the selfie question? I said my bit, I suppose. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question. And I think that not everything to do with image is to do with narcissism. And I think that... Neither, nor everything that has to do with consumerism has to do with uh, narcissism. Mm. What I think that this selfie tells me, may, I'm sure it says different things to different people, but to me what it says is that we live in a culture of image mm. where even top leaders are suffused with the idea that in order to have been somewhere, you have to have the picture of it. And you have to have your own picture of it. So just as uh, a wedding is not a wedding without the cameras being there and another important occasion like this, the, the, um, the celebration of uh, when you, you, you get your degrees or whatever, you have to have... And I think that this is part of that uh, culture of image where everything has to be presented as an image, experienced as an image. And I would go as far as to say that the image has overtaken story and narrative as a powerful means of communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so Steve and then Mariana. Um, I got a somewhat different take on this question because we were primed to, to think about it. <laughs> um, I actually don't think this really has that much to do with narcissism because, of course, state funerals have traditionally had mass photographs with all the great heads of state being present. I mean, the technology's changed, and so now you can do it yourself rather than have a, have a staged photographer do it. Um, and I think perhaps one of the things that, that may be implied here is that some of the respect of the event gets somewhat diluted if it's possible to have many different images of it, mm. right? And there's no longer canonical presentation of the event. But I would locate that issue somewhat uh, apart from narcissism. And I would like to say that for me, actually, it is about boundaries, um, you see. And um, 
It's uh, well, two things really. On the one hand, as I say, our political leaders are, are, are very close to celebrities. We expect them to act like that. We expect them to be extremely attractive. We expect them almost to be like ourselves, so we can touch them and identify with them better. And they do that very well. They spin that story very well. So there is a, an attractive woman. There is this attractive black man, iconic, a first president of the United States. Of, descendant of slaves or whatever, not this particular one, but the narrative he taps into, right? So on the one hand. On the other hand, that this fact happens, this love of sex, you know, images appear at the funeral. So many rich psychoanalytic interpretations, I mean, personally for me. So it's about blurring those boundaries, personally, I would say. And secondly, Freud was talking about love and uh, death drive being intertwined like that. So it's defined death, perhaps in a way that wasn't, as Steve suggested, wasn't, you know, permitted to do, to do earlier. And our more permissive culture, and that has an element of narcissism, that permissiveness and kind of transgressing the boundary that was a taboo. Yeah. You don't kind of embrace in the future. I mean, they didn't embrace. But my fantasy tells me maybe they did. Who knows? <laughs> No, that's all. Okay. So maybe you could tell the next question about genetics and programming. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, in the people I've seen who, I would say, have pathological narcissism, that I, I wouldn't say it was in their DNA. I think it's a transgenerational history that goes back. You know? mm-hmm. And uh, it's like uh, at some point in the analysis of narcissistic patients, one faces what I would call the abyss. You know, each guy said, you look into the abyss and the abyss looks back at you, looks straight back at you. Mm. And for these people, I think they've experienced a world where there's not really been a mind capable of thinking about it, a mind preoccupied with the selfie rather than engage with themselves. And it seems to have gone on for generations. So the, the, the people who end up with a symptom is like anorexia, it's like a symptom of transgenerational history mm. that ends up in your consulting room. Isn't necessary. The, the patient has the symptom, but it has a history that's gone on for generations. And I, it's not my experience. It does change, so it's not my experience that it's, it's the DNA. You know. But a transgenerational history and DNA history can seem very similar. Okay? But certainly the narratives they've inherited over the years has been one where there's been no space for the other. And uh, coming to the mental space of the council consulting room is perhaps the first time they've experienced some people, somebody thinking about them, other than preoccupation with themselves. Of course, to begin with, that's what they think the analyst is doing. The analyst is already doing it for themselves. Mm-hmm. And there's an exploration of another person's mind to see whether that is a mind that has, has got enough space for two people. My experience is that they've grown up in a world with minds where there weren't enough space for two people to exist. And that, that might lead on to our next question about how you help people with yeah, narcissism. Sure. Could you just say a little more about that? Well, in the analysis of narcissism, I think one... Um, I've had, I saw somebody recently, I'm sure I hope he's not here, but... Uh, and um, <laughs> I'm using him narcissistically in a talk, but um, who uh, offered me a, um, a huge amount of money, different, different profession altogether, to go and see him in his office, OK? And uh, he had power. And this is a man who'd been able to pay for his mother because he's a top person in his, in his industry, to have breast cancer treatment. My mother had NHS breast cancer treatment. His mother's life is extended for 10 years because he spent £2 million on her treatment. Okay? The power of the buck um, over a sort of little sort of psychologist working in the NHS. And to begin with, I had to overcome quite a lot of my own uh, uh, narcissistic wound and rage at this man's power <coughs> before I think he was able to begin to acknowledge and bring into the sessions that he had to have power over me because to come to see my consulting room was so humiliating to be in the power of somebody else who wanted to exploit him, £80 an hour, 
He was earning millions, okay. And that's quite a good fee for me. Um, uh, and they were exploiting him for my own ends. What began then was an exploration about whether two people could come together for something other than to exploit one another. You know? mm. And he was obsessed with the idea of why I, in my position of power, with the couch and all this stuff that we, we use as a sort of setting, didn't exploit him. You know? what, 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 what was it in my makeup that didn't use his position of vulnerability when he opened up to me? How vulnerable and frightened he was. Terribly, terribly lonely. Okay? And I was probably the first person he made a real contact with. A huge abyss, empty, the terrible void opened up beneath this narcissistic defence and he became extremely vulnerable and thought at that moment that would be the time I exploited him. Because really I was a narcissist in sheep's clothing, whatever you call it. Okay? <laughs> Trying to seduce him into my power so I could have power over him. You know? And that was a very frightening experience for him. You know, his dreams are full of people, wolves, like Little Red Riding Hood, waiting behind trees to exploit him, and all that sort of stuff. You know? It's very powerful indeed. But what began to change was his belief that perhaps there, was, there were human beings, not just me, it would be a bit narcissistic, I think I was the only one. You know? uh, there were other people in the world who might actually form human relationships with other other than for a market economy or treating people as a commodity, which is very odd in analysis, because the thing about analysis is a very peculiar way of looking after somebody. You know, it's some money, it's 50-minute sessions, all that stuff. So there's plenty to explore in there about whether I was a real human being with authenticity or not. Um, and it was very important for him to discover whether I was or I wasn't okay, in that space, because outside of that space, he'd be very paranoid, and it's all kill the dog-eat-dog, you know, that sort of battle for power. But in this space, he was able to begin to explore the possibility of a human experience. And I think he was the first person in his generations of his family to have enough security, enough money, okay, to begin to explore that with somebody. Yeah, I just wanted really very much to support what you've said about transgenerational transfer of trauma, really. So it's not sort of healed. And we can see that on a societal level, particularly now, that with that um, kind of insecurities, as, as David correctly said, fina- financial nature, the debt society that Europe actually is now experiencing a transfer towards that society and all sorts of societal insecurities and how they are getting processed or not processed. So I think there is something very important in that, I think. But um, so two levels, individual level and you know collective level, which are not the same, obviously. But speaking about the individual level, and in, in Freud's terms, really, I think narcissist is a person who has never separated, you know, from well, mother, which of course, as a feminist, I don't very much. You know, if I'm not <laughs> primary carer, primary carer, let's say the primary object of love, the first object to identify with. And uh, one needs a huge empathy, actually, which is very difficult, because narcissist actually doesn't listen, is just kind of extremely selfish in the worst manifestations of it. It's very difficult, and and a very skilled therapist, perhaps. Hey, I'm spinning your wheelchair. Cards here. Yeah, sometimes. But anyway, I think it's something about an inability to tolerate feelings in oneself, and therefore an inability to actually relate. And when it becomes societally acceptable practice, this is really very problematic. Okay, we'll take some more questions. I'm wondering if um, narcissism is a better or different diagnosis from borderline personality disorder. Thank you. 
I think narcissism is just one defense against borderline personality disorder. I think there are many manifestations of it. Um, I mean, what we mean by borderline personality, a person who actually is unable, has, has a psychotic core that uh, they fear disintegrating into, and whatever defenses they've created provides distraction from that terror. I think narcissism is one, one distraction. It's a very powerful distraction. And it's on the side of self-preservation. But uh, as we all know, the terror is one can't exist in the world alone. However, however wonderful one is. Okay. And so, the, uh, like I was saying, the abyss, the abyss, this terror of breakdown opens up. And I think the borderline personality disorder is somebody who doesn't have a fixed sense of self. And therefore is always, always in front, threatened with disintegration. You said the narcissistic defense is a particularly good defense against that. Yeah. And it works. Particularly in our society. OK, I lost control then. So I'm going to take three. three. So one here. I'm going to go to this lady because I think I've had my back to you. And then one right at the back. And then we'll do another round. Um, where does narcissism fit in with uh, the relations of production in, in, you know, in the workplace under capitalism? And is there some link with alienation? Hi, my name is Katrina Karalko. I'm here at the LSC. Um, my question is, if we're in this age of hyper, of hyper narcissism, that everyone's narcissistic, is it have our attitudes changed? Is it something so negative, or is it just something we laugh off? You know, oh yeah, I'm a narcissist. Oh yeah, she's a narcissist. But whatever, we don't really care anymore. Yeah. Can't beat and join us. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go right to the back there. Thank you. Thanks to all the speakers for very interesting uh, contributions. Uh, my name is Will Davis from Warwick. Um, I was just interested in where this overlaps with the concept of depression, uh, which is a, a much more commonly used term in everyday uh, situations, and it's something which people are willing to diagnose themselves with. It's something people are willing to, maybe not uh, without some inhibitions, but willing to you know, talk about uh, in the workplace or, or whatever it might be. It's become a kind of feature of everyday life and, and a huge cost to the NHS and to employers and so on. So in a sense, we live in a kind of in a, in a culture in which depression has become a sort of uh, a very mainstream prominent concept whereas narcissism still strikes people as being a, a sort of uh, you know it doesn't have the what well, doesn't have the, the, the neuroscientific underpinnings which depression now has it still has very psychoanalytic underpinnings it seems to me so how much of the time when people are talking about depression might they actually be talking about or referring to something which is a bit more like narcissism because it seems to me that possibly the two concepts surely have quite a lot in common in terms of the problem of the kind of loss of limits to our sense of what the self ought to be in some sense yeah. and the loss of sort of um, uh, of, of, of sort of normative limits around what a good self looks like? Great, great question. So this first question about capitalism. Yes, yes I think it's an excellent question, and I think that uh, we should bear in mind that uh, in, uh, in our organisations, the brand becomes part of individual ego ideals. You only have to think of all you students at the LSE and how one day the LSE brand will have, will have become embedded in your ego ideal, supporting and sustaining your narcissism. 
Think of when you're going to get your first not, job. Or not. Uh, well, maybe the, the bread can be tarnished uh, through some uh, spurious association with the institution. But uh, think again when, when you get your first job with a, with a brilliant uh, organization and how uh, your, your narcissism blossoms at the prospect of working for, for, for a prestigious, glamorous and powerful organization. So what it does is that uh, narcissism becomes a very good lever of control, uh, whereby people ident- uh, identify with their organization, and in the interest of being good and loyal employees, they will work incredibly long hours, they will sacrifice their personal uh, lives, they will uh, erode the boundaries between uh, uh, leisure and work, they will check their emails 20 times uh, a day, and generally they will become extremely uh, obedient employees. So narcissism is a, is a great uh, ally to the all-consuming uh, organizations and corporations of our Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Did you want to say something about that? No. Okay. <laughs> so, can, can we laugh it off? Can we laugh off narcissism? That was the next question from over here. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think the problem... I mean, in terms of the way I see narcissism, it seems to me that, for the most part, this broad sense of narcissism that we use is, for the most part, okay, actually. The problem is it blurs into this other kind of defensive narcissism that actually can be very destructive of oneself and others. And I think as long as we use the word narcissism in a sort of promiscuous fashion, we're kind of blurring the kind of two states, right? Because there's certainly nothing wrong with saying, you know, I'm someone who's interested in promoting myself or my ideas or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that, and there's nothing wrong to confess to that, right? The problem is when that ends up blurring into, I'm not going to pay attention to anyone else. I'm not going to get involved with anyone else, right? And, and, and the problem is narcissism gets used for both of those things. And when people talk about it in a very casual way, it's sometimes not so clear they're making the difference. And so I think, you know, that's really the problem. And that's why I think it is good that we do have these kinds of discussions where we try to kind of analytically distinguish different kinds of conceptions of narcissism here. Um, You know, and and I think in a way it relates a little bit to the the question about depression because one way, I mean, I think it maybe was in the background of the question that, that, you know, the rise in depression has something to do with a certain kind of narcissism as a presupposed ideal that if you're not such a self-booster, right, right? if you're not out there pushing yourself all the time on other people, that somehow you're inadequate, Mm. right? Mm. Um, and, and, And so it then becomes very important to get a clear sense of what is the sort of you know you know healthy way of self promotion versus this kind of defensive narcissism yeah. and I think using the word narcissism to cover everything doesn't help matters. Mm-hmm. Okay, so should we move on to this question about depression then? Because I think a lot of us. Um, I think what you're saying actually, I think a lot of people who I see, I'm writing a paper at the moment on melancholia in Lars von Trier's film, which is one of the best films about depression. I've ever seen, you know, and the lady in that, played by Clarice Poplick, what's, what's her name? It's very attractive lady. Kirsten Dunst. Kirsten Dunst. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, very great actress. It's a demonstration. Demonstration. What I was talking about. Uh, she's completely preoccupied with herself, but I think um, her depression, I think, is because, uh, like many of the people I see. Like you were saying, they have failed to come up to some ideal. You know, I've seen uh, young students who didn't get a star day, you know, uh, school students. They got one A instead of a star day who feel suicidal, you know. 
people are getting to Oxbridge and Cambridge and has the highest suicide rate in any university who realise that the you know, glittering prizes mm. are just that, just prizes. Okay? At the end of the day, it does not equip you to manage life. The equipment we need to manage life is much more complicated and isn't taught at schools. And you don't, if you get a star day, it doesn't give you the equipment to manage loss or, or uh, failure in some sort of way. So I think uh, a lot of people come into analysis because they actually haven't got the equipment to manage real life with all its loss and its pain. Mm. Uh, and uh, you can't get a star day in life, you know. And, uh, and I think you know, people are losing it. We're living in a market economy, going back to the politi- political thing, where only the winners survive. If you want to survive in a market economy, you've got to excel and get a star day at everything and get to the top. You know? And what is losing, I think, you know, caring, a caring culture. Well, you know, um, uh, I'll give you a story. A young boy I came to see me had broke his leg at a very top public school. He broke his leg. He was a great rugby player. He broke his leg because he was six foot four. People hurled themselves at him on the rugby pitch. And he was completely excluded. The school had no pastoral care whatsoever. He was excluded and forced to walk to, walk to the rugby ground like a punishment to watch his friends playing, which is about half a mile away on crutches and things. Like that. And, no, and, and he, was, he was like Lord of the Flies. He was treated as a weak, vulnerable person. And there was no place with him in the society he was, he was living in. As a result of that, he discovered another group of friends at the school who are a little bit less sort of competitive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and learned quite a valuable lesson through therapy and thinking about this. You know. But what was extraordinary to me was the culture he was living in was a win-or-lose one. You know. mm-hmm. And if you became vulnerable, you're a loser. You know. Loser, that's what you should say to me, you're a loser. You know. mm-hmm. And I think, uh, so yes, a lot of people are depressed because they actually don't fit into this rather cruel version of society that we've created. You know. And I also think, to answer your question, really, I think the problematic thing is at what expense, at what cost is this promotion of narcissism in all walks of life being achieved? Mm. So we all exist in relation to others, but what type of relation is that? Because narcissism really, uh, you know, presupposes pathological narcissism or defensive narcissism, as Steve would call it, right? Mm. So it presupposes that we don't need the other except as an inanimate object. And that is a very important distinction. Because at the end of the day, well, you know, you have to expose yourself to pain, basically. No, I mean, living is wonderful, but living is painful as well, yeah, because, and that's why it is wonderful as well, yeah? So just kind of exiling that possibility of failure and of pain, it's cheating. It's it's basically cheating, you know, (laughs) us from what life has to offer. Yeah? And, and there is also something else. We talk about market economies, etc. But we forget that in order for a market economy to work, we have to have some decent shot at it. So we have to have some equality of, of opportunities at that market economy. And that's anything but, actually. So, so I think it's problematic how, it, how this personal, individual narcissism you know, is being actually used to support larger societal discourses that promote inequality. So I'm sorry, just one final thing. So even, you know, nudge economists, right? Right? Like they recognize the rationality, but they recognize that the rationality in order behavioral economics. I'm talking to the LSE audience here. I am an alumna of LSE, by the way. So anyway, so so what I'm trying to say here is this: that it is used actually to manipulate preferences of customers, voters, and citizens. So citizens, who are they now? You know, so so this is a problematic issue for me. Okay, thanks. Great. So we're just going to take three final questions. Oh no, listen, don't hate me. Don't hate me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to be able to hit all of you. So I'm going to go for the guy right in the middle. I'm prioritising people in the middle because you're kind of squeezed in. I'm missing you, Ben. And the guy right at the back. <laughs> 
the, the more I'm hearing people talk about narcissism, the more I'm thinking it's such a diffuse concept. People relating it to borderline personality, to depression. What about paranoid personality? Yeah. Both of the grandiose type or the suspiciousness type. You know, because that would fit in quite well with some of the features of narcissistic personality. Yeah. Then you've got pathological uh, narcissism, you've got healthy narcissism, you've got compensatory narcissism. I think it's concept is all over the place and it needs some fine tuning. Okay. <laughs> I can't remember why it was as a lady in the, sorry, there. Um, thank you. I was listening to the radio this morning and reminded of the fact that we're talking about the number of people who in their lifetime are caught in abusive relationships. Where would you fit the abused into the definition of narcissism? Uh, I just wonder, why are we so afraid of ourselves if that's the kind of underpinning of all of this sure. narcissism? Great question. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> okay, now we're going to have to be disciplined. So, first question. Do we need, Well, I think we agree with you about fine-tuning. I think we agree with you, and we're exploring some of those ideas. Here. Yeah, we need longer than ten minutes. So yeah. yeah. But can, can I make one, yes. one comment about that? Um, I actually think going back to those ancient myths is very useful yeah. as a kind of Rorschach test about what you're picking up from what's going on there. What exactly is the lesson of the myth? Um, and I think, it's, you know, so when, in preparing for this, uh, I actually went back and looked at the original, and there's several versions usually of all these myths. And I think that's a, always a good starting point, in a sense, to kind of test what, 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 is, what is wrong with this situation, you know? Um, so that would be, you know, as a kind of little exercise, you know, because so many of these kind of psychological things have these mythical backgrounds, yeah. that this is a useful way to begin. I completely agree. I think that's a great answer. So um, the, the second question was about the link to abuse and abusive relationships. Oh. My, my, I, I, I wouldn't call it narcissism, but um, when you've had a traumatic experience, one way of managing it is to try and fit that traumatic experience into your life, which is to repeat it, what Freud called repetition compulsion, which is the need to repeat over and over again. Because the better the devil you know than the one you don't know. Yeah. So one way of controlling trauma is to say, it was normal, all of life likes this, see? So if I marry somebody and I've been abused in the past and that person abuses me, it just confirms my reality, which is it's an abusive reality. Again, what's terrifying for people like this um, is that when they begin to realise that their aggression and their own life is bound up in repeating this pattern over and over and over again and they begin to see a way out of it, it's terrifying because it's like, I always say to patients, it's a bit like going to McDonald's all your life okay, and then being taken to a decent restaurant and then Otterlengi or something like that and, uh, <laughs> and uh, sorry, little counsellor but uh, they've been taking somewhere nice and then discovering they've been eating crap the whole of your life. Okay? Attack on McDonald's. <laughs> Witnessing here. <laughs> that happened to me, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so to, to, to control your reality, you keep going to the same place over and over and over again. It's a, it's a sort of narcissistic defence, isn't it, to avoid the, the, the huge uh, 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 emptiness of, of the life you've had up to now, which may actually have avoided intimacy, love, vulnerability, etc. Mm. And their parents, as you said, their parents had the same defence. That's right. So, so, well, I think I've, I've just, I, I would describe uh, somebody was describing a place, uh, a particular place, a lot of people have been abused, a place in the country I won't uh, talk about. 
but it's like a sort of black hole in the psyche, a black hole in the psyche. And you fill that up with narcissism and self It's totally understandable. It's all you've got. Mm-hmm. Human relationships have never been that, that good. You know? And I think it's interesting because in the research about online pornography, hardcore pornography yeah. and children's usage of it, there is this link between trauma and repeated use of online porn. So there, there is a repetitive pattern to this. Yeah. Should we move on to the, this last question, which is a deep question? What's so difficult about being ourselves? <laughs> so difficult about being alive. <laughs> well, I think living is really, really difficult. And, uh, we all depend on people being exposed, if we're lucky, to people who have had the equipment to help you manage life, and it's terrible. The one I haven't come to terms with yet, that other thing called whatever, called death. It, to, to be able to have that anxiety from the moment we're born to the moment we die, and having human beings that can cope with that, not narcissistically or defensively, or giving up the ghost or dying on you if you're, if you're, you know, if you're unlucky. To have people who can actually tolerate that with you and bear that with you and think about it deeply with you and share culture with you and give you a meaning for living is enormously important to have, to have a sense of self that you can actually stay with rather than run away from. You know, it took me years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do think... I mean, it is interesting because, you know, in, in the sort of world that I operate in, 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 in sociology and social theory, people talk about postmodernism and mm. fragmented self. Right, exactly. And, and so there's a sense in which, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting how then this kind of discussion would relate to it because one might think of narcissism as kind of a, an over, a kind of overblown sense of needing to have a unified self yes. with a purpose that's overarching and overreaching. But if you start with the assumption of a sort of dispersed or fragmented self mm. with no particular center, then there's a sense in which this issue doesn't really arise, sure, sure. right? Uh, and in fact, that's one of the, you know, sometimes people think that's one of the good things about postmodernism, actually, is that by not feeling you need to have such a, you know, well-organized, focused self, that then you don't get into the, this kind of pathological realm at all. It's not a possibility, mm. you know, um, and... Uh, I mean, this relates a little bit, I suppose, to kind of Buddhist anti-self notions sure. as well, right? Yeah, you don't yeah. get narcissism in Buddhism, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, well. <laughs> the Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama, strongly Dalai Lama. You're not supposed to. You're not supposed to. Fifty-fifth reincarnation. I'm the fifty-fifth reincarnation of you. Dalai Lama was asked, "What when he sees a beautiful woman? How does he manage it?" Okay, he was asked that. Person dunced here. And um, he, he said, his reply was, which I thought was deeply narcissistic, I just imagine her old and wizened. Ooh. Let's not go on to the big Yeah, this is... <laughs> I'm going to ask the question... That's how he managed it. <laughs> um, I do a lot of work with um, mental health at work, so I do a lot of work with managers, and I've got a list of top tips how to survive work. And the one that causes the most discussion and discomfort is the top tip don't be brilliant, be ordinary. And there is something in our culture where if you say I'm not brilliant, then you are a complete loser. So a lot of it is about our capacity to be able to be okay with being ordinary. And in fact, there is no alternative to be an ordinary human being, because that is actually what we, what we are. I'm going to, because of time, I'm going to be cheeky and I'm Speak going to yourself. ask each of you... <laughs> oh, heckling. Psychoanalyst. Oh, that's cruel. Um, yeah. I'm going to ask you each a question to find uh, a final question. Question, um, starting with Steve, which is, yeah, yeah, yeah. cheers. <laughs> what what's your top tip or, or an idea about how to improve intimacy? It could be in a relationship. <laughs> how do we improve intimacy? How do you improve intimacy? Yeah. Well, I, I, I think 
one needs, first of all, one needs to be comfortable with oneself and to be receptive to the other person, all right? Uh, and, and, and in a sense, uh, see, you know, aspects that you find positive in yourself in the other person and being able to learn from the other person so that there's actually a basis for a bond, right? So then you avoid this sort of defensive narcissism as a result. But that should be obvious. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Easy for it's some. Just, just, yeah, some. When we're having this discussion, it is very easy for narcissism to install itself in our mindset mm-hmm. and to believe that everything that we see and everything that happens around us is an indication of narcissism. I think that's a real blindness. Mm-hmm. And I think that it is important to snap out of it and to realize that narcissism, important though it is as a social phenomenon contested, it's not the only phenomenon that we have uh, in uh, Western and other societies. Mm-hmm. No. I think many of us work in education, in health, mm-hmm. and other professions where we have a very profound care for those mm-hmm. that we come into, mm-hmm. into contact with, mm-hmm. where we care for our students, we care for each other. I think it's very important to recognize it in, in other people when we see it, mm-hmm. rather than take it for granted sure. and mm-hmm. treat it with a, a bit of gratitude yes. uh, and yes. respect yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, when we see it. Yeah. And uh, I find that, uh, in fact, um, uh, for all the uh, prevalence of narcissistic excesses here and there, uh, it's by no means a hegemony where Narcissus is supreme and everything else has disappeared from the, from, from the site. Yeah. 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 Lovely. Yes, and what I would like to say, I think it's just um, actually trying to face what one is afraid of, basically emotionally, and if one cannot do that oneself, maybe therapy can help you. <laughs> no, but just quite, and not in a kind of like disempowering anybody, but I think, yeah, actually... Well, you'll get hurt, but then you won't win if you don't get hurt. Something around that, personally, in relations. Because relations are so worthy, maybe just being hurt. It's not the worst thing that can happen. I think that's... It's a no-pain, no-gain principle. Maybe yes. not just like yeah. that, because economists would tell you that, and I, I, I they're my own <laughs> target now. <laughs> I think more like being, you know, being uh, recognizing the vulnerability and being exposed to, vul- to that vulnerability. Wow. That, that, that's, that's something more around that rather than... And, you know, we all exist. No man is an island. No person is an island. And that's, even if narcissists try to be so, no person is in Ireland. Yeah. I'm, I've got a vacancy here. No. Um, I think that uh, you know, narcissists had a, had, a, had a choice. There was Echo, a human, well, within the myth, but another, another uh, in, in, in the real life, a human relationship that you could have turned to. Everybody has a choice. And the only choice we can make is to have a relationship with other selves who then make us face those deep aspects of ourselves we'd rather avoid. Mm. And uh, it's, the only, it's the only game in town. There is nothing else. You know? Narcissism is an illusion. You know? We all know that. The narcissist knows that deep down. You know? mm. But uh, facing that abyss, the, t- the terror of the uh, human predicament, I think you do need others, not just analysts, you know, people who love you and care about you. Mm. you know? I'm, as somebody was saying, I'm incredibly impressed by the, the capacity of mothers or, f- or fathers to take care of their children deeply. And a part of that's narcissistic. I was learning the other day that uh, a mother depends enormously when they breastfed the child or the father has bottle-fed the child. Um, when, uh, on, the, on the child, to smile back, to, to give you the feeling you've given them a good feed. Now, that's positive mutual narcissism, if you like. You feed me and I'll feed you. So. And when that doesn't work, that's when it starts going wrong. A friend of mine had an Asperger baby, whatever Asperger's is, 
and the, ba- the child doesn't smile back. And the mother is deeply wounded you know, because her feed is going in and the child's not giving her the message. That's good. You know? And we all depend on that from each other all the time, like us here, mm-hmm. looking at you, smiling at me, great. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so we had a good feed. <laughs> <laughs> Who's feeding whom, as you say? <laughs> Well, on, on that note, it's with huge gratitude that we thank you as an audience. Um, you've listened to us, yes. you've talked to us, you've been very intimate with us, thank you. I'd like to thank our panel for helping us think about ideas that normally have people running for the hills. I think they did a great job at uh, getting us to look a little bit in the mirror. I'd also like to thank um, the LSE PPG group, who are, in its truest sense, brilliant. Actually, technically, they really are. So thank you very, very much. And please remember our evening.